the two categories that came up over and over again from people that I trusted in the industry were kombucha and cold brewed coffee. I started looking into coffee. And at that point, I saw some trends within coffee that to me were an indicator that the opportunity in coffee might be similar to that that was happening in beer about a decade prior. And that was coffee consumption was declining slightly one or two percentage points a year with hot coffee, hot brewed coffee was declining, but cold brewed coffee was growing at a pretty significant rate. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On today's episode, we're speaking with Paul Evers, CEO and co-founder of Riff, about his passion for craft beverages and coffee's dirty, not-so-little secret. Hi, I'm Paul Evers, co-founder and CEO of Riff. Thanks for joining us, Paul. I'm excited to uh, tried some of the products. Thought they were delicious, but you know, chatted with you a little bit to learn more about your background before this conversation. And I think, as a fellow person coming from a creative background, I was really intrigued by your previous experience before launching your own brands. You helped other people launch a lot of brands or helped on the consulting side. So, before we dive into what you're working on now, can you tell us a little bit about your career background and helping other brands grow? Yeah, my background really is in creative services. I'm a creative guy, actually. So on the creative side of creative services, uh, my career history is really in graphic design, art direction. But I would say, you know, underlying that, my ethos is really oriented around relationships. And so that's really driven a lot of my career path and what my interests are. I really see brands actually as being the conduit that connects, you know, brand is a very That's really a kind of a pretty obtuse concept. What is a brand? But we know it's not simply a logo or an identity or, you know, a package design. It's really the ethos of the brand. And that's really about making connections and building relationships. So that's been more the philosophical approach that I've taken to creative services and helping companies build more vibrant relationships with their fans is the way I like to put it. So long career in creative services, working for others in the agency business, working in in-house, came, coming from tech, then migrating over to in, in Bend. I live in Bend now. We, we moved up to Bend in 1990 from Southern California. And so in Bend, uh, when you're in creative services, it's going to be, you're going to work on a pretty broad range of sectors with a, a heavy load of tourism, a little bit of CPG and, uh, you know, some banking and other service industries. Nice. Like and I know that eventually your career came to kind of focus a little bit around beverage brands. So how did that transition happen from those days in Bend doing a little bit of everything to kind of having a more of a hyper-focus? Well, in Bend, you know, it was back then it was a fairly small town when I was working in creative services. And so one of the things I realized after a few months of working for this other agency is that, I had the only job that was a perfect match for my, my capabilities, skill set, and where I was at in my career path. And so, started looking at other communities, you know, more metropolitan areas for potential careers and just 
because we love Ben so much, turned those things down, which led then to exploring launching a new agency with some friends. And so that's what we did. So we, we ended up uh, we were working a lot in tourism, resort, and a lot of different those same sectors that was working in previously, but really was drawn to packaging, actually, because that's a really tangible expression of the brand. It is the primary touch point for consumers. I really didn't have a background in, in packaging. None of us really did, but we were really drawn to it. So we started going after and really trying to find a a client that would give us the opportunity to develop the brand via packaging. And so our first project was with a small craft distillery here. This is in the late 90s. And we were able to work on a, a gin brand that was made with natural ingredients and hand-picked juniper berries. And so that really was, you know, rich with content and storytelling. And that was very successful. Uh, so that was really just going based on intuition and realizing that we could have, you know, more noticeable and quantifiable impact on brands' ability to connect with consumers by working on packaging. So this brand, for instance, I think the it was selling for about $20 a bottle with the rebranding on the packaging and, and a lot of different touches that we implemented. And we were very experimental. We did a lot of crazy things with that label and leveraged a lot of sort of, you know, manual labor, which wears out over time to create super special feeling like you're, these, each individual bottle was hand bottle, which it was. But it then commanded a premium price point of $30. And so that was, that's material. So we said, wow, the work that we're doing is actually helping that client increase the retail price of their product uh, by, you know, 50%, which is significant. So that, yeah, that kind of solidified an attraction to CPG. And that work, in fact, led amongst uh, some of the other work that we were doing, led to the opportunity to work with the Schutz Brewery in a complete rebrand. Back in those days of craft beer, you know, the differentiator for craft beer oftentimes was a little bit more of a less sophisticated approach to packaging or design or branding and kind of look more homegrown was more the key and what really differentiated craft beer from the large beer brands. So uh, we got the opportunity to work with the shoots. And again, it was just intuition leading us and we did a complete restage of their packaging and of their identity. And that was in March this one year. And prior to that, they were flat or some, in some cases declining with some of their uh, SKUs. And when we relaunched the brand, it actually, they realized at the end of the year, a growth rate of 18%. So that was another validator. Like we have some really good intuition, I think, into how to convey or how to articulate a craft sensibility, a sense of humanity in packaging that resonates with consumers. So that's what really kind of solidified our passion around what we categorize as craft beverage. Nice. Okay. Yeah. And I, I imagine we could geek out on that for an entire episode being a food enthusiast and a designer of packaging myself, but I want to get to some of your other projects. So we'll move forward. So I know that you also, you know, through your specialty in craft beverages, obviously gained a lot of experience. Like you said, you had good intuition, you knew how to market them, but eventually you, you jumped to the 
launching your own company side with Crux, I believe was, I think that was the first brand you launched on your own. So tell us a little bit about how that came to be and some lessons learned that you carried from your creative services side into launching your own brand. Well, I would say Crux was born out of three different primary factors. One was we were doing a lot of work in craft beer. We had been working with Odell Brewing out of Fort Collins, 21st Amendment Brewery out of San Francisco, as well as some NA uh, craft brands like Hum Kombucha. At that time, they were Kombucha Mama. You know, that passion is what is the key ingredient in launching any kind of craft brand, particularly craft beer. So there's a lot of emotional benefit and emotional satisfaction with developing a brand that creates this kind of the overall vibe of a craft beer brand. So that's what really drove that. You know, craft beer brands, the way that I saw it at that point is that they were engaging their fans in relationships that elevated significantly above a transactional relationship. You know, we're not now manufacturers and consumers were basically co-opting the brand, inviting a tribe set of fans. I hate the term consumers because that just belittles our primary contributors to just consuming products. I, I've always hated that term. But, you know, inviting people in where they feel like they have a sense of ownership. In fact, they're wanting those brands that they support, those craft brands that they just support to be a part of their own identity. So they're wearing the merch, they're wearing the hats, the shirts, and they're proud to have that sense of affiliation, even though they don't own any equity in that. So we're really drawn, I was really drawn to being a part of uh, sort of an operator in that equation, not just the sort of the facilitator of that relationship, but being on the operations side. The other part is, is that in our work with craft beverage brands, and I'm sorry to backtrack a little bit, but we had started employing research, consumer insight into really understanding how to articulate a brand in a way that is powerful, meaningful, resonates with uh, consumers. And we were using more ethnographic and anthropological methodologies working with a researcher. This brought incredible insight. It's just like you know, if you're in a relationship and you're having troubles or challenges communicating or being on the same page, it's really a communication challenge, right? Listening, then also speaking from an authentic point of view in a way that's respectful. It's the same, you know, I think rules of play that can be applied to a brand and building a relationship with your audience. So we understood we're consumers. We had, a, I think, a, I guess I would say a an inside track on understanding what consumers were really interested in and then understanding how to build a brand that was based on authentic passion and communicate that brand in a way that was meaningful to the customers, the fans. And then the other is, is uh, just building relationships with those in the craft, craft beer industry, uh, really trusted relationships. So ended up, you know, working on a concept in early 2007 with a really good friend from the craft beer space, talking about a concept of just seeing the trend now back in that time of consumers wanting and wanting to explore and a real draw to more complex barrel-aged beers. And so the idea initially was really around building a brewery that was based on low volume and high margin and just rich experiences. So we wanted to have a tasting room that provided an opportunity to really engage with the brewery. So that ended up becoming Crux Fermentation Project, which opened in June of 2012. 
in Bend, Oregon. And I could go on and tell the story of that, a story of failure and then success and, you know, prototyping and iteration. And uh, we ended up with an incredible location in Bend. It's basically a former Amco transmission plant at that you know, we stumbled upon, well, everybody knew where the Samco was, but nobody knew how to get to it. It's, it's a, we say the, the name Crux was really born of something that was really an authentic part of the origin of that place. And that is, it was in the crossroads of the, of the town of Bend where the four quadrants met, north, south, east, and west, is at the Crux of Bend. And then a little bit elevated, provided a beautiful panoramic view. And we did everything we could to eliminate the barrier between a customer and the actual operating brewery. And I think we did a really beautiful job, you know, and just satisfying all the regulatory from, you know, federal with TTB to state and local and then permitting, uh, you know, building codes, et cetera. So when you go there, you can actually, you know, you can sit pretty close to the brew house and smell you know, the spent grain as it's being pulled from the lotter ton. Uh, you can smell the, the whole leaf hops as they're being placed into the hop back. And the beer is actually drawn from what are called bright tanks, but we use them as serving tanks. So you're, you can't get beer any fresher than what you can get at Crux. So that was all about creating an incredible, rich experience for consumers. And then figuring out how to translate that out into the retail environment at the same time, but really provide a tangible, rich environmental experience at the tasting room. Wow. As a craft beer nerd, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those uh, beer nerds that's kind of, I like a good IPA occasionally, but this whole movement of everything is IPA all the time, especially in the Northwest is frustrating because I love a beer experience. One of my favorite things about craft beer is, is the variety of different, types of beer and different thing inclusions you can put in there and different ways you can bring it to life through different types of fermentation and there's just so much richness to it that every brewery i go to i just get like a flight sampler just because i want to see all the different things that are doing so to dive deeper into that experience through crutch um sounds or crooks sounds amazing nice work on yeah, that it really is thank you yeah you know there's it is amazing so one of the things i love about craft beer is that Prior to craft beer, so you take brands like Sierra Nevada, others that were really pioneers in the space, people, you know, in the U.S. understood beer as being a, you know, a Pilsner, a, you know, whether it's Bud, Miller, Coors, but really we didn't have an understanding of the breadth and the opportunity for creativity and exploration that was available in beer until the craft category basically revitalized uh, more traditional Belgian uh, brewing methods or German and then added, you know, a whole new level to that just with a spirit of entrepreneurialism and creativity here in the U.S. It's just, you know, if you condense that history of what happened from big beer to craft beer being the predominant players in the space, uh, from my perspective at least, it's pretty dramatic what happened. And so those were game changers, those pioneers in the brewing industry. And it really, I think, I see craft beer as being the lead horse or the big tanker for such a small category, really paving the way in the migration and kind of creating this wake that other craft sectors could then follow along that caused Americans to trust their neighbor more than large manufacturers. I grew up in an era 
where TV dinners were introduced. And so mass production of food products, I think we are led to believe that that's who you trust most, that they must have the, the QA programs and protocol all locked down. And uh, it turns out that they've been betraying us for decades. And really, it's your neighbor down the street who you can trust most. And so that really led the way, I think, to you know help consumers trust smaller brands, regional brands, and really paved the way for a broad range of innovation and new product uh, introductions in the U.S. Yeah. Well, I'm appreciative of that trend because, yeah, I, I love all the experimental, all the small batch, all the whatever, um, because as soon as things go super mainstream, more often than not, they get really watered down because they're just trying to find the lowest common denominator, you know, of like the flavor, or the taste that people yeah. will like in order to push it out further. Um, but those more craft experiments can be a little, take more risks, you know, because they're working on small batch. Yes, right. <clears throat> That's right. That's exactly right. So, yeah, the risk is minimal. And if you, you know, when we started Crux, I think one of the things that we agreed to is that we would celebrate the first time we had to destroy <laughs> a batch of beer. Nice. That, you know, you want to adopt this mentality that we're prototyping, we're iterating, learning, test, uh, iterate, test, learn. Um, and, you know, not be afraid to failure. In fact, uh, not be afraid to fail. I mean, in fact, embrace it and, you know, fail harder, faster, because it's about in pursuit of the next thing that we're not yet, yet aware of. That's a beautiful philosophy. It's clear that you bring a lot of like passion and curiosity to all the projects you work on. And as we kind of start shifting the conversation into your more recent brand that you launched, I'd love to hear how, you know, Obviously, you have all this passion for the craft beer and alcohol and other <laughs> beverage kind of industry. But then your newest product is coffee, which, you know, can be craft as well. Of course, we've learned over time. But how did coffee bubble up on your consciousness and, you know, push you to decide to launch another brand in that space? Well, you know, this is only the second conversation I've had with you. And you just kind of nailed me. You said, I, I know that you, you can you demonstrate a lot of passion for beer and alcohol. That's right. That's very true. <laughs> well, you know, I think, you know, going back to the craft beer experience, what really drove that for me is just the the resetting of the kind of relationship that a brand can have with its consumers. And what I like to say is the maker of the thing and the lover of the thing. And, and removing as many barriers in between those two parties to have a really vibrant relationship. That's what craft beer did for, did for me. So, I decided, so I had been involved in day-to-day -day operations at Crux for five years and very strong partner, uh, Larry Sador, who is a very well-respected brewmaster in the craft beer space and decided that I was ready to move on. I, I understood, you know, I, I kind of really fully realized coming from creative services where you're working on a broad range of sectors and you're working on a variety of brands. One of the things that I love about that whole thing and being in creative services is that because of that variety and you're learning about all these different categories, it was really satisfying my desire to be a lifelong learner. You're always learning something new as you're getting into, uh, you know, diving deeper and understanding your clients' businesses. And so I was really getting in touch with the sense that, you know, what I really love to do is build things. I'm not necessarily the best person to be the ongoing operator once a brand has reached a sort of a, a level of maturity or or a plateau. So I decided to leave day-to-day -day operations at Crux and then to start 
venturing into something new. And I talked to a lot of people in the industry, people who were, you know, our pillars in the craft beer space and beverage overall, and asking what the most exciting categories are, you know, to get involved with right now. I was interested at that point in getting into non-alc. I was really interested in learning what that other side of the regulatory wall was and how that worked uh, to learn about that. I was also, you know, had a sense of satisfaction that we, you know, was involved in the launch of a craft beer brand. So balancing that out with non-alc seemed to make sense for me. And so the two categories that came up over and over again from people that I trusted in the industry were kombucha and cold brewed coffee. I started looking into coffee. And at that point, I saw some trends within coffee that to me were an indicator that the opportunity in coffee might be similar to that that was happening in beer about a decade prior. And that was coffee consumption was declining slightly one or two percentage points a year with hot coffee, hot brewed coffee was declining, but cold brewed coffee was growing at a pretty significant rate. And then the more and more I started learning about cold brewed coffee, I really started to understand and interpret that and see the possibility that that could be the cold brew sector could be the disruptor in the coffee space. The last, you know, material sort of uh, transcending event that we had in coffee was really Starbucks popularizing the Italian, the traditional Italian ways of preparing coffee. And if you go pre Starbucks, making that, you know, available across the country, across the globe, uh, really the way that people enjoyed coffee was either out of a can um, you know, with, with grounds uh, out of a can or freeze-dried coffee or diner coffee. But coffee was not a very elevated experience. It was more uh, something like a dollar a cup in a diner. And then Starbucks just revolutionized coffee in creating what they call this third place between home and work and a place to hang out. So we were seeing a new opportunity with cold-brewed coffee. What we love about cold-brewed coffee is it's less acidic, it's less bitter. It really allows us natural, amazing. Coffee has an amazing flavor wheel, by the way, with dried fruits and floral and, you know, citrusy beyond the, what you would expect with chocolate and nutty and roasted. It allows those flavors to shine through because when coffee was introduced into this country, it was really a lower grade Robusta coffee. And I couldn't imagine launching an entire category by saying, we understand it doesn't taste that great, but if you balance out the bitterness with some dairy and, or I mean, the bitterness with some sweetener and the acidity with dairy, then you got a really great drink. So just buy these other two ingredients along with your coffee. And that's how, you know, I grew up in that coffee space because the quality of coffee when I was growing up was not that great. And so then we were seeing, imagining an, uh, an opportunity to bring the craft sensibility over into cold brewed coffee. And to create an experience and reintroduce coffee, restate what the relationship with coffee could be through cold brew uh, with a commitment to innovation and exploration. And so that's been an interesting path uh, that we've embarked on that actually has taken us to places that we had never imagined or dreamed of. Nice. I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but a lot of this conversation around coffee and alcohol and kombucha is reminding me of a book. I think it's called like drink or the history of drink or something. And it talks about 
all the different, the world's most popular beverages and the origins, where they came from and how they grew in popularity and so on and so forth. But if you haven't checked that out, you should read that book. Super interesting, especially for someone wow. in your shoes. Well, as soon as I get out of this, and that's exactly what I'm going to be looking for, because that is the book I've been searching for. So thank you. Yeah, it's a, if I remember correctly, it's a pretty thick book too, but just super fascinating. Excellent. So as you dove into coffee, obviously you're a very curious person, which is great for being a creative service provider and an entrepreneur. But, you know, in our previous conversation, what struck me is that you kind of through your curiosity and through learning more and more about coffee, you, you discovered what you call this not so little dirty, not so little secret within the coffee industry. And that kind of led you to a new product kind of category that you've launched. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that dirty, not so little secret? You know, that's my favorite story to tell. So great. You know, coffee has been around for about 400 years and the story of, you know, how coffee became, you know, one of the world's largest agriculturally traded commodities is really fascinating. The origins in Yemen and East Africa and it's just fascinating. So it's been around so long. We've all grown up with it. It's sort of like, uh, you know, you become desensitized to even thinking about beyond what coffee's like, except for, you know, a bag of ground coffee or whole bean coffee that you grind and then you brew. And, you know, we're just not really thinking beyond that. And when we started, uh, we were getting ready to launch. We were in the planning phases for Riff. One of my co-founders is uh, Bobby Evers, who is related. He's my son. We decided to take a trip down to Columbia and spend a couple of weeks with coffee farmers just to really understand coffee is a new category for us. So we wanted to learn and wanted to really have a good understanding of what, you know, what it was like to grow coffee. How is coffee cultivated? harvested, processed, and prepared for export? What were the living conditions for coffee farmers? What was it like for them? What was the, what were the requirements for, you know, growing coffee, et cetera, all those idiosyncrasies. And so we spent two weeks down in Columbia in early 2017 and toured about a half a dozen coffee farms and, and experienced it firsthand. Being new to this space, I hadn't really thought about this, about, you know, coffee being a fruit I knew that there was like a red berry the coffee plant produced and that coffee beans were inside that red berry. And I had seen that before, but I didn't really, you know, apply much thought to it or analysis or curiosity. And so when we were down there, we, you know, spent a time with coffee farmers. We actually were hosted by coffee farmers for meals and they're very, very simple homes, you know, with dirt floors and walls made out of bamboo. These people were so wonderful and generous and offered such incredible warm hospitality. Then they'd walk us through their fields and we would pull ripe, ripe um, you know, coffee berries or coffee cherries, whatever you want to call them. Coffee has a lot of confusing terminology, by the way. And, you know, extract the pit, which is, you know, the two-headed seed, which is a coffee bean. And then they actually experience the flavors and the sensory of what that fruit is like around the coffee bean. And uh, it was really surprising and mind-blowing to us. Really, a very prominent natural sweetness. Uh, there's a bit of starchiness to it. But really, what I got out of the, you know, one of the few cherries that I tried down there, along with uh, Bobby, was uh, really a strong notes of apple and other fruits were very familiar 
apricot, some stone fruit. And it was very complex, very new, but also really, really wonderful. And But we didn't think much of it. And we were also shown, you know, an area that was a back court, uh, the back corner of a plantation where they've been discarding, this one particular farm has been discarding their cascara because it's a, it's a byproduct with no demand. We didn't have, you know, much of an understanding of what it was and its possibilities back then. So they'd been discarding this one farm, discarding the, the coffee, the cascara into this uh, back corner of their plantation. And all the trees that pre-existed this area uh, were dead and leafless. And it just looked like a miniature La Brea tar pits. But we didn't think much of it. We didn't really think much of it. That was really, but really striking. Uh, one was a surprising deliciousness of cascara and then the surprising visual of this incredible wasteland that was being developed. So when we launched Riff, you know, bringing that craft sensibility to the cold brew coffee space was uh, what we were all about. And of course, being, you know, taking from the spirit of craft beer, innovation was one of our cornerstones. So we began experimenting in 2019 with Cascara and converting Cascara into a beverage that would complement our cold brew coffee line. And so our other co-founder, Nate Armbrust, who comes to us from Stumptown, he had been with Stumptown for five or so years, actually helped them grow that business from benchtop brewing in cafes to packaged product for national distribution. He's actually the guy who came up with the idea of nitrogenating cold brew coffee for nitro cold brew, which is now being offered across the U.S. And Starbucks has their own. It's offered in all 14,000 of their cafes across the U.S., so we started experimenting with cascara and traditionally, you know, cascara was a pretty small segment. Most people are not aware of cascara and it traditionally had been presented as a kind of a still tea in a glass bottle. So kind of like an iced tea that you might pour over ice. That was the, the product form. And we wanted to do something different. We were surprised by, again, you know, the flavor profile and it has a natural tartness and sweetness and stone fruit flavor notes. And so we landed on, let's try something that's carbonated. And so as we were working through that, started thinking about just our natural curiosity, started thinking about, you know, we saw one coffee farm and what they did with the cascara. But uh, you know, looking at the statistics that, uh, you know, as much as 25 billion pounds of, you know, dried whole bean green coffee is staged for export on an annual basis, what's happening with all that cascara? And so, what we had heard is that it's traditionally it's composted and converted to fertilizer. And so, well, that's good. That's good. So, then it's, you know, helping, you know, the coffee farmers be more, they have a higher yield and better product, et cetera. But then we started thinking a little bit deeper into the magnitude. So I'm not a coffee expert. I built a spreadsheet talking to other people on our team, talking to key stakeholders, relationships that we had in coffee. And just uh, was kind of directed and led to look at the anatomy of the coffee cherry on the plant and break all the different components down by weight. And so the, we learned that the coffee bean, you know, the two-headed seed makes up about 20% of the total weight of a coffee cherry. And that cascara actually makes up about 65% of the total weight. 
of the coffee cherry at the time of harvest. The, the balance would be all the various layers like skin and parchment, et cetera, the, the layers separating the different parts. And then we started thinking, and this is, there's a lot more cascara than anybody that we did, a lot more than, you know, than what we had imagined or thought. So started reaching out to trade groups, talking about, asking about what their estimates are, the magnitude of cascara that's produced and what's being done with it. And how is it being used? And we're not getting much information, uh, not getting calls back. Get the common response would be, I'll reach out to somebody in that category where somebody will get back to you. And I never get a return call and make another call. And so we started becoming very, very suspicious that this was a large problem that people were very uncomfortable talking about. And so we finally, it took a lot of work, but we got the attention of a senior climate change scientist at Oregon State University and sat down over coffee. This was pre-pandemic in late 2019 and said, we want to work with you on a study estimating the magnitude of cascara that's produced, the magnitude of waste and what its impact is on the environment, because we're suspicious that it's significant. Doing our own calculations we had some significant estimates and then some peers in the space actually were doing work in Cascara had their own estimates. So we launched a robust study with Oregon State University supervised by this senior climate change scientist, Dr. Dominique Bachelet, and the study was conducted by a PhD student. You know, a few months later, so in the spring, summer of 2020, the results of the study basically validated that we had every reason to be suspicious because the estimates were far greater than what other people were aware of or or claiming. And that is as much as, and I believe this to be a conservative estimate, with 25 billion pounds of green coffee processed, harvested and processed for export is the, about the equivalent of 100 billion pounds of cascara produced as a byproduct. 70%, this conservative estimate is literally thrown to waste, 70% of that. So the 30%, yes, is uh, some is converted to fertilizer through composting. Some is used as animal feed and some is uh, translated into biofuel. But 70 billion pounds was a, you know, as I said, a conservative estimate on what was being thrown to waste. There are three main ways of actually, I guess, processing the waste. One is dumping it into the back corner of coffee plantations, uh, like I had previously described. In Mexico, the general practice is to just dump it into streams. And then the large portion of it is actually just hauled off the landfill, where it's literally piled into mountains. So when it's dumped into the, you know, the back corners of the plantations, you know, basically you have a fruit that's uh, where the protective skin layer has been punctured because you've extracted the, the bean. And so that's just a rich environment for microbials and mycotoxins to develop. So what scientists are saying is in the back corners of plantations, it's developing mycotoxins, which are then seeping into soils and water tables and destroying the land for future agricultural use, which is exactly the scene that we saw firsthand. When it's dumped into waterways, it's as it's decomposing, it's depleting the, ox the, the water of oxygen and leading to the killing off of fish and other aquatic life. And then when it's piled in the mountains and landfill, I know it's astronomical, isn't it? So in, in when it's piled in landfills and mountains, it's as it's decomposing, it's producing methane gas to the equivalent of over 13 billion pounds of 
well, it's methane gas equivalent to over 13 billion pounds of carbon dioxide, which is the same emissions level of 3 million automobiles in a single year. So that's what we call coffee's dirty, not so little secret. And that is, you know, nobody understands that their, you know, normal cup of joe is actually contributing to the new normal, the extreme weather events and floods and fires and what's happening to the planet. It's uh, that whole story is compounded by other really significant issues that are facing the coffee industry. For instance, coffee, 75 to 85% of coffee is actually grown by smallholder farmers, meaning independent family owned farms. And about 80% of the total, those, or 80% of that population is actually living in poverty because of historically low commodity pricing. So coffee farmers are unable to make a reliable living. Coffee is grown in a very narrow temperature window and, uh, you know, in the low 70s, high 60s, low 70s. And that temperature window needs to be fairly stable. That's why coffee is grown in the equatorial zone. So with rising temperatures, coffee farmers have no option but to go to higher elevations. It's the, the best way to make sure that they're growing coffee in the right temperature zone. And leading scientists today predict that you know, as much as half of the existing land that's being used to grow coffee will no longer be viable because of rising temperatures by the year 2050. So the coffee industry as a whole has this very significant, you know, sustainability risk moving forward. And the irony is, is that they're contributing to the greatest threat that's facing the coffee industry by wasting cascara. So you got the environmental health, you've got the challenging economic situation uh, for coffee farmers. And then the thing that makes this an even graver sin, I mean, all that's bad news, right? But what makes it an even graver sin is that we don't know about cascara. And so hence, there's no demand. And the truth of cascara is, is that it's nutritionally rich. It's loaded with antioxidants. It's got potassium, rich in potassium and, and iron. And we suspect that it's arguably the better half of what the coffee plant has to offer. Yet, because there's no awareness, there's no demand. And so, I mean, the coffee, we love coffee. We love coffee. I love coffee. I have coffee every morning as part of my morning ritual. And then to know that there's this better half that's actually being thrown to waste because there's no awareness, that's awful. So, why are we taking an agricultural, you know, byproduct that's nutritionally rich and can enhance the health and wellness of consumers and just throwing it away. So our whole purpose here is to translate cascara into products that can benefit consumers. You know, they, I've seen a lot of papers written about comparing or uh, classifying cascara as a superfruit, comparing it to other superfruits like acai and, you know, the cascara puts the acai berry to shame. I mean, I'd say it establishes a whole new category. Like it's, it's a super fruit. It's not just a super fruit. It's a super duper fruit is what I'm saying. And so, you know, translating that to products that consumers can enjoy, injecting economic viability for coffee farmers that, you know, when, when consumers today are thinking about sustainability, they're not just thinking about the health of the planet, but they're also thinking about supply chain economics, economic equity. They're looking at social equity. How are these farmers being treated? Is it ethical? Is it fair? 
there was a story recently, I think on NPR, that was making the point that if we were to if we were to balance out supply chain economics to make sure that there's equity throughout the channel with coffee, that a cup of coffee in the U.S. should cost about twenty five dollars to make sure that coffee farmers are paid what the what you know what they deserve. But by generating demand for cascara, then we create economic value for that as a byproduct of the harvest. They can potentially double their revenue stream double employment, and it injects economic viability. And then saving it from going to waste is, you know, in service to the planet. So we're looking at a win across all those different silos. And then another issue is just the proliferation of plant disease, which seems to be fueled by rising temperatures. Uh, some communities suspect that these waste piles of cascara actually is what's generating the fungus that's leading to uh, leaf rust. Um, which is really interesting. Um, there's some, there needs to be some more study on that. But when you think about, you know, these independent coffee farmers trying to grow coffee, they're, they don't have reliable income as it is. They're having to deal with the proliferation of plant disease and, you know, the destruction of a certain percentage of their coffee plants. Uh, you're looking at the rising temperatures and the inability to grow coffee because of the temperature, you know, the climate issues. And then all these things, our contribution to this problem in solving it, which, you know, spans the entire chain is to generate demand for cascara. You're definitely the first cascara based food company I'm aware of, but I've also seen, you know, companies solving similar problems with cacao. Like when cacao pods have a similar thing, they've got the seed inside, but there's all this fruit that normally goes to waste. And then I've you know I've been seeing a lot of hemp advocates going out there talking about it's not just about the benefits of like CBD or other things like that, but the hemp fiber itself is incredibly valuable and can be used in construction materials or clothing or whatever. Also, I'm just super fascinated. That's what I love about the upcycled kind of product movement is that it's just about getting smarter with existing resources. Like there's all these problems that were caused because we got a little too hyper-focused and didn't think about the whole system. And we just took the seed, but threw the berry away. You know, like there's all these problems like that, that then rippled out and created so many terrible effects. But if we just go back to like trying to use the whole thing, the, the whole animal, the whole planet, the whatever, and kind of respecting a little bit more about the value locked into all these different ingredients, attributes of a plant, you know, different types of fiber, different nutrients, et cetera, then not only will we create more economic opportunities, but we'll be healthier and more sustainable and so on and so forth. It's just, it makes total sense. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's why, you know, at RIF, our mission is to explore and celebrate 100% of the agricultural value of the coffee plant. And, you know, when you have a legacy category like coffee, you know, back 400 years ago, uh, wasting some cascara was not a big deal. But when you have it, you know, when, now that it's one of the largest traded agricultural commodities in the world, we're talking about something very, very, very significant that has a long legacy of practices. And so there's a lot to be done. And, you know, I think, you know, our whole approach to this is figuring out how to identify that perfect overlap of altruistic mission, you know, and solving all these problems I just talked about and creating a win-win-win situation, you know, overlapping that with, with an enterprise opportunity. And so we believe we've done that. And, and I've got a little can here of our Riff Energy Plus. We actually, you know, because 
we're not going to be able to solve the problem unless we have scale. Uh, we, we need massive scale to actually contribute something meaningful to solving the problem. So we actually engage with college students up and down the West Coast on sensory, on brand messaging, uh, what kind of functional benefit would be most attractive to them. And, you know, the brand positioning and the hierarchy, the messaging, all of that. And so we see this as being purpose built because we need to make sure that we're producing a product that is going to appeal to a mass audience. This is the beginning. You know, we have three different flavors, but this is the very beginning of our work in Cascara. There's a lot more to be done and there's a lot of different formats that we're looking at as far as translating Cascara into something that can benefit consumers. This is, you know, the other thing with the Energy Plus is that we're not able to extract the entire nutritional value of cascara. So there's a lot more R&D that we're doing and what we're imagining for ourselves in taking 100% of the nutritional value of cascara and translating that into a beverage or a bar or some other kind of product. That's beautiful. So you have, I think you still have the cold brew as well, but this new line, just for clarity for those listening or watching, yes. um, the newer line is a, a sparkling energy drink that's got a nice clean ingredient profile and kind of a, a f bit of a fruity taste with it. So definitely go check out the website. We'll share links and everything in all the show notes if you're interested in those products. But and as you mentioned, I'm excited to hear about what's coming next with Cascara because I think, like you said, there's so much potential for it. I appreciate your advocacy around <laughs> bringing awareness around that as an ingredient and a functional ingredient at that. So I'm looking forward to see where you go next with that. But before we sign off on this, I'd love to, as someone who's helped launch and grow many brands for clients as creative services or even your own brands, and I'm curious to know what's your most important piece of advice for other impact entrepreneurs and marketers? Well, you know, I think our egos tell us to be afraid of failure that failure defines failure, <laughs> that you're if, you are a failure if you fail. But I think a great example is I think Dyson actually did, I don't know, something like 4,000 different iterations before he landed on the final prototype of the vacuum that has become so popular. We need to embrace, I think, you know, if you're a young brand and you're developing a plan, I think there's an attachment to demonstrating that you're successful and that you have insight and that you got it right by saying, you know, kind of attaching yourself to this idea that you're going to develop a plan and it's going to be perfect and it's actually predictive of what the future holds. But embracing more of a malleable openness to, you know, it's important to have a plan as a foundation, but making sure that you understand that the world is not static and is continually evolving. And you're going to have things happen to you that are very surprising, both on challenges and opportunities. Like for us in the RIF plan, we set out, we were wanting to build a really super cool uh, cold brew coffee brand. Now what we understand ourselves to be is like, we want to be the premier coffee brand, coffee brand as a whole and really utilizing the whole, uh, you know, everything that the coffee plant has to offer. So we kind of see ourselves as the next phase of what it means to be a coffee plant or a coffee brand. I'm sorry. So remaining open and then, you know, not being afraid to fail because failure is part and parcel with exploration. And so resiliency, the other thing that I, that has really been substantial for us is really getting, having clarity around our purpose. 
you know, with a purpose oriented around solving these problems and, and exploring and celebrating 100% of the coffee plant's agricultural value in a way that's adding sustainability to the coffee industry itself, helping coffee farmers and translating something great to consumers, that elevates you above this, you know, having a purpose that's around top line revenue or, you know, gross profit, net profit or satisfying investors or making sure you look cool or whatever. But having a sense of purpose that is above and beyond and greater than yourself or your company, your brand, that really injects a significant amount of energy and drive, which puts you in a position to break down barriers rather than recognizing barriers as stopping points because you're driven to break those barriers down. You understand that you're venturing off into new territory. There's no roadmap. There's no assurance. There's no process that's already been established that'll get you through to success. So you have to carve that path yourself. You have to, you have to be an adventurer and explorer. I love that because I do think the entrepreneurial path is difficult or just marketing an up and coming brand or anything. There's just, especially when it's mission driven, you've got so many more things on your plate to have to solve for and figure out and keep in mind that having that purpose in mind, in your heart and that's driving you forward will get you through those tough patches where you're wondering if anything's working or where you're kind of experiencing the ups and downs or you're getting stuck on something, but just having that purpose driving you helps push through those walls and keep carrying you forward because you know, there's something great at the end of it. Yes. And you know, small emerging brands are, that is the bedrock of our economy and our, you know, economic ecosystem. Small emerging brands are the ones that are making, you know, shaping the future of what's happening in this country. And what going back to our earlier, the earlier part of our conversation, it's really about, you know, being an advocate for consumers, for our, you know, our fans, our, the lovers of what we do and being able to offer more, more options, more sustainable options, more responsible options to consumers to consider when they're shopping. But I think it's important when you're a small emerging brand to understand this is this is going to be, you know, you have to be battle ready because essentially the industry, you could say wittingly or unwittingly, is conspiring against you. The system does not want small disruptors. It just wants to make it easier for these other brands that have already experienced a certain level of scale and success and, they, 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 you know, those people are those brands, those corporations are beholden to their shareholders and, you know, making sure that they look good on their, their quarterly reports. And we're here to challenge that entire system. So that's that is like, uh, you know, a David and Goliath story, kind of like at a multiple of 10x. You know, it's it's uh, so you have to be ready. It's not easy and it's not automatic. And a lot of it has to do with relationships and who, you know, you know, you have to be willing to knock on doors, not just once, but 60 to 100 times to get somebody to open the door. And the COVID, uh, the COVID climate uh, as an overlay is just creating greater challenge to that whole environment. So you have to be super driven and I think have a fair amount of humility because there's no one of us that really has enough, I guess, capabilities and, and institutional knowledge and understanding to be able to 
navigate through any of this very swiftly. You, um, regardless of how much experience you have, it's challenging. And then, you know, at the end of the day, if the, if the consumer doesn't like what you have or isn't in love with it, then it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And on that note too, anyone listening who's in this industry and, you know, growing a brand and wanting to learn from others and, and try to get further faster together, come join our on free online community at community.evolvecpg. But with that said, thank you, Paul, for coming on and sharing your story and some of your wisdom. I imagine we could geek out on so many of the subjects we touched on for hours. So we might just have to have you back on the to dive in some more rabbit holes, but uh, appreciate you coming on, sharing yeah. your story, fighting the good fight for Cascara and upcycling and all the good things that you're doing. So keep rocking that out and we'll point people to all your different uh, social media profiles and website and so on and so forth in the show notes. But thank you again for doing what you do and coming out and sharing your story. No, I really loved it, Gage. It's really good to get to know you and thank you for A, inviting me to be a part of this and have a conversation and then B, thank you so much for your efforts to create, you know, an environment, a community around CPG brands to help foster greater viability and in, to inspire all those that are part of the community. So I really appreciate it. People like yourself who are wanting to help elevate brands such as Riff and give them a, you know, a better shot and some, you know, a little bit of um, unfair advantage. So thank you so much for all that, all that you do. Business can be a powerful force for good. Is your brand living up to its full potential? Go to EvolveCPG.com to learn about our new impact workshop, Exponential Good. Over six weeks, we'll be thinking bigger, getting relevant, spreading throughout, going exponential, working backwards, and making it real so you can walk away with a clear vision and a detailed action plan for scaling your brand's positive impact exponentially. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Paul or his company, go to letsriff.com. Business can be a powerful force for good. Is your brand living up to its full potential? Visit evolvecpg.com to learn about our new workshop, Exponentially Good, to scale your impact exponentially. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. <laughs> <laughs>